I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we're talking about the most explosive constitutional issue in America today, and that has to do with race and the criminal justice system. Two shocking events, the deaths of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and Eric Garner in Staten Island, New York, have led to a furious national dialogue about how the legal system deals with the police. Uh, Brown died in August after a confrontation with Officer Darren Wilson. Garner passed away in July after he was placed in a chokehold by Officer Daniel Pantaleo. Uh, Brown and Garner were both African-American, the officers are white, and in both incidents, grand juries declined to indict the officers. In the aftermath of these uh, refusals to indict, there have been public protests about the decision and a spirited national debate about long-range changes in the legal system. Uh, Joining us to discuss this most important of all constitutional controversies are the two leading experts in America on this complicated question. Tracy Mears is the Walter Hale Hamilton Professor of Law at Yale Law School. Uh, Before arriving at Yale, she was Max Pam Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Studies in Criminal Justice at the University of Chicago Law School. Paul Butler is Professor of Law at the Georgetown University Law Center. He teaches in the areas of criminal law, race relations law, and critical race theory. Uh, Tracy and Paul, it's such an honor to have such distinguished scholars and two old friends to join us for the first time on our constitutional podcast. And Paul, I want to begin with you. Um, You have written powerfully that in the Garner case, the problem wasn't simply that the grand jury didn't want to indict, but that the prosecutor did not want an indictment. I want you to talk about similarities and differences between the Brown and Garner cases. Do you feel that in Ferguson, the prosecutor was not sufficiently vigorous in the desire to get an indictment, or, or were the facts different? There was the law against him. In, in short, talk about the role of prosecutors and their vigor or lack of vigor in seeking indictments in Brown and Garner cases. Jeff, when I think about my experience as a federal prosecutor presenting cases to grand juries, Technically, the prosecutor is the legal advisor to the grand jury. The grand jury is a group of citizens who meet to consider whether to bring charges. For federal cases, grand juries must be the people who charge citizens with felonies. The states have the option. About half of the states use grand juries, and the states that don't use grand juries, um, the prosecutor can just bring charges herself almost like filing a case, uh, in a, filing a complaint in a civil case. In Ferguson, the prosecutor had the option of filing charges himself. Instead, he elected to use the grand jury. The grand jury proceeding in Ferguson and in Staten Island, New York, uh, those were unlike most grand jury proceedings. The standard that a grand jury uses to return an indictment is probable cause. It's a very low standard. At the most, it's maybe 51% certainty that the person is guilty. In some cases, the Supreme Court has even implied that probable cause means something less than 50%. 
and the grand jurors don't have to return a unanimous verdict. It's, it's a majority vote. What that means is that grand jurors, in most cases, indict. It's a secret process, so I'm not allowed to say in the many times that I've appeared before grand juries how many times they didn't indict. But I can tell you it's an almost negligible number. So in both cases, I believe if the prosecutor wanted an indictment, uh, he or she would have gotten one. In both of these cases, I don't think the prosecutor wanted an indictment. And this is not uncommon in cases in which local prosecutors investigate local police officers who they work with every day. This is not to say that the facts are the same. I think the Garner-Staten Island case is a much easier case for prosecution than the um, Ferguson case. But nonetheless, Jess, if I had been a prosecutor who presented the evidence, who was the legal advisor to the grand jury in Ferguson, then Officer Wilson would be facing criminal charges right now. Tracy, do you agree with Paul that prosecutors in both the Brown and Garner cases did not want indictments? Uh, and uh, if not, can you point to differences, factual and legal, between the two cases? It's interesting that you posed the question in that way, you know, whether the prosecutors wanted it. Um, it's hard for me to comment on their psychology. Um, you know, in the Ferguson case, I think we have a little bit more information, given that the prosecutor was so much more public, released a great deal of information um, through what he says um, was, was compelled by the Missouri Sunshine Act, which is actually not clear to me at all. Um, we know less about what's happening or what happened uh, inside the grand jury room in Staten Island. Um, but here's what I do think is important and what's probably motivating your question. Um, I think that Paul is right that um, there are all sorts of indications that the process that both prosecutors use differs from the typical process that prosecutors use in the ordinary situation in which they are the legal advisor to a grand jury. I was also a federal prosecutor um, uh, for the Department of Justice's antitrust division, and uh, it was extremely uh, rare that we would uh, not uh, achieve an indictment in a situation in which we, we wanted one. Um, but I do think you know, that disjuncture, the fact that, that the practices seems to differ, have raised questions in the eyes of the public. You know, so it's our psychology that I'm more concerned with, especially given my research about procedural justice and legitimacy of, of criminal justice systems. And you know, the kinds of questions that the public is raising about the processes in these cases is extremely troubling. Um, I'll give you another example of how a prosecutor has used the grand jury in cases like this. I understand from doing a little bit of research that Robert Morgenthau, the famed um, district attorney in Manhattan, um, made it a regular rule to always use a grand jury um, in any case in which there was a, a police shooting of a civilian. And um, it is my understanding that he did so because he was worried precisely about the kinds of dynamics that Paul has alluded to. That is, you worry that prosecutors who are close to police officers and police agencies won't reliably bring charges in cases that seem to, to deem it. So Margenthau's approach 
was to use the grand jury to actually uh, be sure, or at least more sure, that there was a higher likelihood of indictment using the grand jury as more of an, of an independent body. And so I don't think that the, the fact that uh, a prosecutor uses a grand jury process automatically means that the prosecutor doesn't want an indictment, uh, as you were suggesting in the question. But I do think that you know, the ways in which these two prosecutors uh, use this process or these procedures raises some questions about um, their desires. Paul, you have written that the problem is the culture of the relationship between prosecutors and cops. You said that prosecutors see the same cops over and over and they bond with them. And I'm quoting from your article, the problem stems from the culture of the prosecutor's office, compounded by the fact that like most lawyers, prosecutors are competitive and ambitious. And the way you move ahead is to win your case and get star witnesses, the cops to go the extra mile. Uh, t tell us more about this observation. It seems like you feel that these Brown and Garner cases are not extraordinary but typical, and how can the culture of prosecutors' offices be changed so that prosecutors can meaningfully oversee police misconduct? Uh, I think the problem is such, Jeff, that it's insurmountable with regard to the culture of prosecutor offices. So I think the best answer is for special prosecutors outside of the district attorney's office to step in in these cases and, and, and complete the investigations and make the recommendations to the grand jury. Now, I think that based on my experience as a prosecutor, I'm an African-American man who grew up in Chicago, a city that uh, Tracy also has close connections with, and had a number of bad experiences with police officers where I felt that I'd been racially profiled or just generally disrespected. And that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to be a prosecutor. I thought I could go in as this kind of undercover brother and make a difference from the inside. And what happened was rather than change the system, the system changed me. When you work with cops every day, you appreciate that they have the most difficult jobs in the country. And you just gain a lot more respect for your work. So even I, again, this guy who went in with this, if not hostility toward cops, deep suspicion, I was seduced. Uh, I, I came around. And it's not so much because you hear definitely that some cops are, are questionable. And it's not that you, you excuse egregious misconduct. It's just that you kind of turn a blind eye. You don't ask the follow-up questions that you probably should. So all of this, including, again, the part of the culture that we're talking about lawyers here, you know, we are. We're competitive. We're ambitious. We like to do well in professional settings. The way you do well in a prosecutor's office is to win your cases. That's how you climb the ranks. And you can't win your cases if the cops think that you're that prosecutor who treats them like some suspect. They think you're this uppity, elitist guy. They're kind of nat natural class conflicts or tensions between cops and prosecutors anyway. So every prosecutor has had the experience of in the middle of a case, a cop just turns on you because he doesn't like you and he wants to know. So all of that means, you know, you have to kind of go along to get along. It's the culture of the office. And, you know, I've thought about ways to change that culture for a bunch of reasons, including, you know, the fact that 
part of that culture of winning cases, I think, contributes to mass incarceration, to us being the leading nation in the world with the most number of our citizens locked up. That also has to do with the culture. I just think it's really tough. Um, with regard to mass incarceration, you know, I don't know what to do. It's something that Tracy has done great work on. Jeff, you've been thoughtful about it. But with police investigations, again, there's a much easier solution. It's mm -hmm. just to take it outside of that office and let a special prosecutor step in. Great. Okay, Tracy, uh, Paul has made this very uh, important suggestion of a, a special prosecutor. I want to connect it to your work on social norms. You have written powerfully that the key to promoting compliance with the law um, is police legitimacy, which stems from better cooperation between the police and the public. And you are the leading scholar in the country about how people can promote police legitimacy, and you've identified a number of factors, treating people with dignity and respect, making decisions fairly, not based on race, giving people a chance to tell their side of the story, and acting in a way that encourages those who are being dealt with to believe they're being treated fairly and will be treated benevolently in the future. I want you to connect all this important work on social norms with the question today of how we can fix this problem of police misconduct. How can authorities respond to police misconduct in a way that will promote police legitimacy and gain the trust of the communities they affect? Okay, that's a really big question, and I think one place to start, um, you know, talking about the four factors that you just spoke about, which are sort of the four cornerstones of procedural justice, which um, itself supports legitimacy, is to go to return to Paul's point about a special prosecutor, because I think it's an illustrative case, and then I'll say something more general. So part of the reason why a special prosecutor is helpful is because of you know culture, but also the sense of an inherent conflict. Um, people looking at this process from outside find it difficult to believe that that prosecutor or that grand jury, given that it's influenced by that prosecutor, led literally, it's a legal advisor, by that prosecutor is making the decision fairly. That's one of the tenets of procedural justice. So a special prosecutor, of course, gives you some objectivity um, and neutrality. That's what you're looking for. You want the public wants indications that decisions are made fairly based on facts and not based on some other kind of invidious factor like um, race or personal animus. And you know, just to make the point a little differently, it, think about the relationship between local cops and, and federal prosecutors. Um, now, I'm sure Paul is a federal prosecutor, but Washington, D.C. is a little different. It's, it's more like a, a local jurisdiction. But if you live in a city like Chicago, you've got your local DAs and you've got your federal uh, prosecutors. And um, I can tell you that the federal prosecutors are much more skeptical of local police because they don't have the experience of working with the local police every day. So when those local police are, are witnesses in their cases, um, the prosecutors scrutinize them really heavily um, and are sometimes skeptical of them. And the same exact dynamics that Paul was talking about, the fact that those federal prosecutors want to win, actually turn the dynamics around you know, um, make the federal prosecutors more uh, uh, skeptical of the local police rather than less. So that's just a particular um, example of, of how these ideas can work in the context in which Paul was talking about. You know, more generally, I think one of the really important things you can do is to instruct and train 
policing agencies and, and personnel uh, you know, about these ideas. And I, along with my colleague Tom Tyler, have spent a lot of time developing a, a pretty innovative uh, set of training materials with the Chicago Police Department um, on these issues. And, and I think uh, it's our experience that police actually appreciate having a different perspective, uh, a perspective that doesn't demand that they are always skeptical uh, of the public uh, with whom they work, and always assuming that, that, that members of the public are about to kill them, right? <laughs> Which is that kind of dynamic actually fueled um, the Ferguson case in, in, in particular. Paul, please respond to some of Tracy's incredibly provocative points about how uh, the dynamic between federal prosecutors and state police may be less uh, trusting and complicit than state-to-state uh, -state authorities. And then talk about the federal dimension. You've just written a provocative article expressing questions about whether the attorney general designate uh, uh, will in fact be as vigorous as her predecessor, Eric Holder, in filing federal charges. Uh, you know Loretta Lynch and have had some encounters with her, and you have uh, tell us about whether you think she will be vigorous in investigating any possible violations of federal law, including a pattern or practice of unconstitutional police practices in Ferguson and Staten Island. Sure. First, just let's take a moment to reflect on how bizarre it is that we're having this conversation in 2014 about black men and boys receiving extrajudicial justice from from people who are serving as as a judge juror and executioner in this case they're they're cops but they're being killed young black men and boys are being killed um unarmed they are being killed by armed white men. And, and there's a perception in the community that the states aren't sufficiently protecting black victims. And so the call is for the federal government, the mm -hmm. feds, to step in. So welcome to Mississippi in 1950. Uh, I just think it's, it's disconcerting that even the, the slogan for the movement is Black Lives Matter. The fact that that's the point that needs to be made in, in 2014 suggests that we really haven't come as far as a country with regard to racial justice as I think most of us would, would hope. And, and for that reason, I, I applaud the work that Tracy's doing. You know, I, I, I came to this conference from a uh, – <laughs> I was over at the D.C. Board of Elections, and it was the recount today – for advisory neighborhood positions, advisory neighborhood commissions in D.C. are these kind of micro-neighborhoods that um, have elected leaders. They're volunteer positions, and they don't have a lot of power, but they're heavily contested. One of my buddies was running, and he won by one vote, so there's a, a recount today. And it almost, you know, it's, it's silly, but it almost reminded me of Bush versus Gore because, you know, for these micro-districts, there were all these people you could go to the little neighborhood commission you wanted to see the recount for, and there were all these people looking, and fortunately we don't have hanging chads in D.C., but there were four representatives who were counting all the ballots again in this, this incredible interest with mainly African-American communities. So what that reminded me of, I think the relationship is, that African-Americans have always been the most vigorous champions of democracy 
and the legitimacy of governance and confidence, needing to have confidence in the rule of law. So that's what Ferguson is about. That's what Garner is about. It's about equal protection of law. And that's why I applaud the, the National Constitution Center for understanding that this is a, a constitutional issue. So the, to directly answer your question, Jeff, I think the federal government can play a large role. Again, historically, um, that's what it's needed to do. The Justice Department gained much of its prestige as one of the world's preeminent law enforcement agencies for doing exactly this kind of work in the 1960s especially. So what can it do? Um, one, it can help everyone understand that there's a lot that the, um, of good that can come out of the tragic events in Ferguson and Garner that don't involve the prosecution of one police officer. Importantly, it can do a, a pattern and practice investigation of local police departments is actually doing that right now in Ferguson. And, and so the reforms that can come out of that, um, again, I think would make a much more of a difference to the citizens of, of Staten, Island and, and, uh, Staten Island and Ferguson than, than whether two cops go to prison. Mm -hmm. Tracy, talk about other national reforms that could come out of Ferguson and Garner. There's increased focus on whether police encounters with uh, suspect should be recorded. Um, and more broadly, I'm just interested in your thoughts. We've had national protests, city after city. Given your work on social norms and legitimacy, how can the Justice Department and perhaps even the President of the United States respond to these protests in ways that would increase the trust that citizens have in law enforcement? So one of the things that um, I found interesting, and um, you know, I, I want to preface this remark by saying that this is something I, I read on online, so I'm not entirely sure um, that. That means you uh, know it's true. <laughs> that it, that a only, only if it was on the Constitution Center website. Um, yeah, well, see, maybe you guys can follow up with this, uh, and you will find it interesting. I read, I think, uh, at, at a Lawrence O'Donnell site that. The grand jury in Ferguson was instructed um, on a statute um, covering use of force, police use of force, uh, from 1979 um, in Missouri, which is before um, Tennessee versus Garner. So, in other words, um, the statute that supposedly was relevant to um, Officer Wilson's use of force um, was not constitutional. Um, and so, you know, when you talk about reforms, you know, one thing is to actually ensure that, you know, the states um, around the country are, are in compliance with constitutional on use of deadly, uh, with the Constitution on use of deadly force. That would be an important first step. Um, uh, you, you mentioned police encounters, and one of the things I would love to see and I think is really important gets back to this issue of um, the kind of, of skepticism that officers have with members of the public in particular encounters that demand escalation immediately. Right. So um, I think we need to pay a lot more attention to you know, what's motivating uh, officers to uh, engage individuals in the first instance and, and ensure that there is some relationship between that and their subsequent use of force. Um, even if the police officer decides that, you know, arrest is, is subsequently necessary, it, it seems strange and odd to me 
that someone could go from walking in the street uh, instead of the sidewalk to being dead, uh, you know, a few hours later. You know, we should think about the determinants of the, of the beginning of those encounters and, you know, these ideas of police legitimacy that I am working with say a lot about those uh, things because uh, those ideas are based on, uh, an, an, on a notion that compliance, the public's compliance, comes out of uh, being willing to defer to the dictates of legal authorities as opposed to complying with the law only because you fear the consequences of failing to do so. Um, this idea that you're going to comply because you think that legal authorities um, are, have the, the right to be deferred to requires mutual trust and so that it's necessary to change uh, the, 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 the contours of the relationship between the, the police and, and the public and, and both sides need to, you know, need to understand that. What is one thing that we can do to, to help uh, provide information and data uh, to help the police in particular you know, change their approach to the public? Well, I, I'm a big fan of, of, um, of body cameras. Uh, I think that that's going to help us a, a great deal. And um, for example, I know uh, my friend Jennifer Eberhardt, who's a psychologist at Stanford and a recent MacArthur Genius Award winner, is, is doing some work on that in Oakland. And, and I'm pretty excited about what she's going to be able to find. Paul, what do you think about body cameras? And you, you and I have both uh, expressed concern about the privacy effect of uh, cameras in other settings. In fact, we did an experiment at GW where your students filmed uh, my class without my students being told that they were filmed, and, and they didn't react very well when they found out afterward. Are there privacy considerations uh, when the cops are filmed, or is it a good thing? And tell us more about whether you think it would be a, a helpful reform. There are important privacy concerns, so those have to be balanced against the important public safety benefits for both police and citizens, and frankly, good government benefits of having interactions between police officers and citizens filmed. So part of it is the obvious stuff that it helps the police make their cases. It gives us more confidence in the integrity of the evidence gathering process if we can see the police ask someone if they can look in her backpack and we can hear her say yes or no. Um, so all of that is helpful. You know, the good government part is when you know that you're being filmed, it makes you act nicer. So lots of my cop friends uh, tell me when they hear me say things that I think the police should do that or do this. They say, Paul, come on a ride along with me in Southeast, uh, a low-income African-American neighborhood in the District of Columbia. Hear the kinds of things that folks shout out to me. You know, you know me. You know why I'm doing this work. I, I, you know, I love my community, but it's tough, man, they say, when you hear this stuff. So, again, I think if citizens know that they're being filmed as well, that mm -hmm. will make it better all around. I do want to point out, though, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm so impressed with Tracy's work on the legitimacy of the interactions or the way that citizens feel about their government. And, of course, in low-income neighborhoods and African-American neighborhoods especially, the primary manifestation of the government is the police. 
Uh, the police are the representatives of the state uh, to these folks. So it's so important that all of our citizens have confidence in our government. Again, I, that's why I keep coming back to it. It's not just about criminal justice. It's about the legitimacy of government. It's about democracy. And along those lines, uh, one of the things that, again, Tracy has helped us understand is the relationship of mass incarceration, how many people were locking up to these issues. Because the fact is, when one out of three young African-American men has a criminal case, then going to jail is almost like a rite of passage. You know, So folks have to decide, do they believe what they know about the young men in their neighborhood, or do they have to believe what the criminal justice system is telling them, that they're dangerous and immoral? So folks know better than that, and what Tracy and Tom's work illustrates is if it comes between what the government tells you you should think and what your own experience tells you you should think, you're always going to go with your own experience. So we just have to match those up, and one way is to just use incarceration use punishment much more strategically. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, this is a remarkable conversation, but I think it's time for closing arguments. And Tracy, I'm going to give you a big assignment and then ask Paul to do the same thing. Uh, President Obama has been criticized for not speaking out more forthrightly in the wake of these cases. Um, if you were President Obama's speechwriter, imagine he decided to give a speech tomorrow uh, designed to increase the trust that African-American citizens have in the police and the government. What would you have him say, and what specific reforms should he propose? I think I'd say two, maybe three things. Um, the, the first thing I would say is building on the argument that Paul just made about the relationship between um, police as representatives of legal authority in poor minority urban communities um, and um, their role as, as basically representatives of the state. It would be to point out the ways in which um, you know, the criminal justice system educates all of us um, about who we are as citizens. And the situation we have uh, seen in, with respect to these two recent incidents, along with you know, the issues of, of mass incarceration, about which Paul has written so eloquently, and how prosecutors carry out their jobs, and um, you know, everyday policing such as stop and frisk in New York City, uh, provide really important lessons about who um, uh, African Americans are in particular as citizens and, and who the rest of us are. Uh, as, as citizens. These are critical lessons that are actually inconsistent with the former lessons that we receive about uh, citizenship from places like the National Constitution Center. If that's a formal curriculum uh, of citizenship, then um, this treatment that African American citizens receive is, is a hidden curriculum. And what we need to do is align the formal curriculum with the hidden curriculum. And the way you do that, I believe, is making sure, is by making sure that the treatment that all people receive, but especially um, African American men, because they're pretty much set up as, as anti-citizens almost, um, is consistent with these ideas of procedural justice and legitimacy. And what does that require? I think it requires retraining um, again and again uh, police officers in these ideas, um, training them about ideas of implicit bias uh, as well. I think it means making uh, a real commitment 
to fair decision making um, by prosecutors, um, and not only in cases involving the grand jury, but you know, in in the everyday cases, you know, like the, the drug cases uh, that that Paul writes about so well. Um, and you know, I also think it requires a commitment to seriously talk about these issues all over the the internet. <laughs> there has been conversations about you know, people not being able to recognize the privilege that they have, whites in particular. And I think the cultural change that we've been talking about for the last half an hour, which needs to take place not only in the criminal justice system, but you know, throughout the country requires us to face this and have a real conversation about it. Not about, you know, discrimination and and and, and bias, but about the structural determinants of privilege. Thank you for those eloquent thoughts. Paul, same assignment for the closing argument. You're President Obama's speechwriter. Uh, what should he say and what specific reform should he propose? So for the specific reforms, I'm going to be oh, the president during the, the State of the Union. We kind of uh, ticks off his list of, of policy recommendations. So uh, my two are, one, just to collect the data on a national level about the uh, number of citizens who are shot by the police. You know, we have extremely accurate data when it comes to the number of police officers who are wounded or killed in the line of duty, as we should. And again, you know, these guys are, are literally giving their lives for public safety, these men and women. So it would be very useful to have the data um, as reliable for the number of citizens who are wounded or killed by police. Incredibly, no federal agency is required to keep that information. We clearly need to know. Uh, the other is we have to get rid of this insane program in which local police departments get surplus military equipment from the Pentagon. Uh, that's the reason that we saw those tanks on the streets of Ferguson, making it look more like Fallujah. Uh, one of the incredible provisions of that rule is that when local police officers get these tanks and stun guns and, and camouflage material, they have to use it within a year. Otherwise, the government takes it back. So we can imagine all of the perverse incentives that creates. It's just a dumb law that we need to get rid of. And now I'll go to conclude kind of uh, the hope, the hopeful President Obama, and, and agree with Tracy that we really do need to focus not only on criminal justice, but on all of the, the structures that limit the access of African Americans to the American dream. So we need to talk about how race matters, not just with regard to criminal justice, but with regard to, to jobs, with regard to housing, with regard to, to health care. You know, one of the ways that that white privilege that Tracy talked about was created um, is by locking blacks out of the instruments that led to the creation of the white middle class. So African Americans didn't have the same access to, to federal mortgages or to the GI Bill um, or to health care as, as white folks did. So when we look at, look at facts like the average net worth of a White man, a single white man is $41,000. For a black woman, it's $100. Uh, 
you know, we can all understand the difference that that makes to the woman's children and to her community. So we, it, it, it's not just about income equality. It's also about racial equality. Um, so we have to talk about race. And those are difficult conversations, uh, but they are ones that we have to have. So, again, I'm optimistic that Ferguson can be not just a, a moment but a movement. So for that, I guess I'd have to say I have the audacity of hope. <laughs> wow. Uh, Paul Butler, Tracy Mears, thank you for an extraordinarily illuminating, eloquent, and productive conversation about our most agonizing uh, national uh, challenge, uh, namely the question of race in the criminal justice system. Hope very much to keep you engaged in the National Constitution Center. And to all of our great listeners, please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.